Welcome to this week's NK News podcast recorded in Seoul on October 19th, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today I am joined in the studio by retired Ambassador Joe Yun. But before we get into the interview, I want to talk to you about the new NK Shop. NK News annual online store is back in business for the holiday season. Chad and the team have really stepped up their game this year and have extremely limited edition retro t-shirts, 2019 calendars, postcards, and my personal favorite, the Andy Warhol-inspired North Korea canned goods posters and vintage DPRK travel posters. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off their entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10, that's NKPODCAST10, at the checkout. Just go to nkshop.org to see what's in stock this year. They'd make really great gifts to any North Korea watcher. Okay, now let's get to the interview. Our special in-studio guest today is Ambassador Joseph Yun. Ambassador Yun was the former U.S. Special Representative for North Korea Policy. He served from uh, October 17, 2016, I hope I've got that date correct, to uh, the end of February this year under both President Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And he was preceded in that role by Ambassador Song Kim and succeeded by Stephen Began, who, uh, who began most recently. Thank you for joining us today, Ambassador Yun. Well, thank you, Jacko. Very happy to be here. I understand that you were born here in Seoul in 1954, shortly after the uh, Korean War armistice was signed. Yeah, I, I don't remember when I was born, but that sounds about right. That's what people told you, right? Yes. Uh, and then you left the Korean Peninsula in 1964 after which you were educated in the UK, and then you joined the United States Foreign Service in 1985. That's right, Jacko. Now, you've retired. So are you here on a holiday, or are you still involved in Track 1.5 or Track 2 Dialogues? Yeah, I would say I do a few part-time jobs now, uh, Jacko. Uh, one of them is I work for U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a congressionally funded independent think tank uh, dealing with very much peace issues around the world. And second thing I do is I also work for the Asia Group, which is a consulting group giving uh, strategic advice. And then third thing is I'm also uh, work for CNN doing some commentating hmm. uh, on that part as well. Oh, well, our good friends from CNN used to be right next door to this studio, but they moved to another building about a month before you came here. So uh, you won't be seeing them in this building. Which of those uh, part-time jobs brings you here on this particular trip? I'm here for USIP. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recently, I think, uh, uh, did a conference with... Uh, Asan Institute ah, yes. and Wilson Center, and that's the principal reason I, I'm here. Uh, so generally speaking, do American diplomats who are born in Korea or born of Korean heritage, do they have a special position as kind of intermediaries between the U.S. and Korea? Well, I wouldn't say that. And in fact, when I joined the State Department in 1985, there weren't many Korean Americans. However, you know, you know, someone like Sung Kim or myself, we've worked in the embassy here. We have the language skills. So, so that tends to be in your favor when we do our, our career work. So, so I think many of us, or some of us, I would say, have ended up. Since I joined, there's been, you know, big influx of Korean Americans working in State Department. Now you find many, many more. Mm. Now, obviously, the task of a, of a U.S. diplomat is to represent, explain, and further the interests of only the United States. But do 
Korean-American diplomats also serve as interpreters of Korean interests to the U.S. because they better understand the interests of South Korea. Yes, I mean, I, that's very much the case, uh, Jacko, in the sense that uh, Korean-Americans have, uh, you know, uh, understand. Uh, I, I don't know whether there is any particular skill, but uh, there is a bit of cultural understanding. And as a diplomat, your job is to explain, of course, primarily your government position, which is American government, but to explain to your authorities, which are, which are the American authorities, the position of the country you are assigned in. Was that ever uh, difficult for you? I mean, did that ever place you in a difficult position? I don't think so, Jacko. Uh, in my case, I've had two assignments in South Korea. And initially, I was a little worried, but it was never a conflict, primarily because I would say uh, U.S. and South Korean positions have been very, very similar in any political issues. Mm. Okay, well, that's helpful, obviously. Um, now, you traveled to North Korea, was it last year, uh, to arrange for the release of Otto Warmbier? Yes, I, 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 I traveled to North Korea uh, last June to see whether I could bring back the American prisoners, including Otto Warmbier. Right. And how much lead time did you have to prepare before you actually had to get on a plane to Pyongyang? Very little time because we just learned probably about two or three days. I, I left for Pyongyang that Otto was very sick. And so uh, my boss at the time, Rex Tillerson, Secretary Tillerson, told me to go as soon as possible. So I went there as soon as I could. And when you arrived there, how much had already been kind of prearranged either bilaterally or from the North Korean side? And how much did you have to improvise uh, on the ground? Well, there was very little arranged except for me to see Otto at the hospital. And I was accompanied only by a a nurse and a doctor. Of course, I went there uh, with the hope, with the goal of bringing Otto as well as three other American prisoners back Yes. But that uh, North Koreans never committed that mm. or agreed to that before I left. So in the end, uh, of course, uh, I ended up bringing back Otto. I did not get the other three prisoners. So so I had to uh, uh, negotiate while I was there in bringing back Otto. Who was the most senior North Korean official that you met while you were there? At that time, I talked to uh, two groups of uh, North Koreans, uh, one was uh, from Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, uh, headed by uh, Vice Minister Chesan Hee. Mm. And I also talked to uh, their law enforcement officials. Oh, okay. Um, wow. And uh, which side were more difficult to talk to? They were both uh, not easy to talk to. I mean, clearly, uh, they, they stuck to their position that Otto had, uh, as well as the other Americans, mm-hmm. had committed crimes yeah. uh, and that they had gone through, uh, two had gone through trial, including Otto yes. and one uh, Korean-American. The other two had not completed their trial by that time, so that, that they had been found of crimes uh, against the state. And so these are predictably difficult conversations. Uh. It's a sensitive question, obviously, but what do you personally think actually happened to him while he was there? I don't know what happened to him, of course, but according to North Koreans, he he, he became sick the day of his trial, uh, which I believe was March of 20, 
16, I want to say, and that he became sick. As a result, they believe possibly some food that he ate and some medicine he took. So Mm. that's their explanation. Did Otto's tragic death play a role in bringing us to where we are now in terms of U.S.-North Korea negotiations? I don't think it played a huge role. I think, uh, no, I, I wouldn't say, say it played a significant role. Uh, partly as a result of what happened to uh, Mr. Warmbier, the United States has enacted a travel ban on its citizens, uh, recently extended for one more year, uh, forbidding Americans from traveling to North Korea. And uh, until recently, no, uh, non-governmental organizations and aid organizations were able to apply for exemptions and special single-use passports to enable them to travel to North Korea for their work. Uh, I understand that now applying for such an exemption has become even harder. Given that this is hurting humanitarian and grassroots development work in North Korea, is this, in your opinion, a wise move? That's a tough question, Jacko. Uh, and I do believe that my own personal uh, view is that humanitarian assistance uh, and humanitarian travel, as long as those are approved by North Koreans, uh, should be conducted. Then how much uh, do you credit President Trump versus Kim Jong-un versus Moon Jae-in for where we are now? And it, I mean, we're, we're a long way from where we were a year ago, and it, it was quite a scary time living here on the Korean Peninsula. How do you see the leadership that you know, led us to where we are at the moment? I think uh, the three, three leaders obviously get a uh, lion's share of the credit. But I think we ought also understand the circumstances that drove their actions, uh, you know, taking them one by one uh, on, uh, on Kim Jong-un's part. Of course, uh, he had reached a point in his weapons program, I think, where he felt that at least that stage had been completed. So Kim Jong-un decided uh, that given that deterrence is there, he decided to turn the policy towards economic development. And and I think that was uh, clearly a key decision uh, that took place as we, that materialized that as outsiders we saw in his New Year's address uh, this year. And on President Moon's part, of course, he ran, he campaigned on the platform of valuing denuclearization as well as reconciliation with the North. And of course, he promised that there would be no war. So he had more at stake than anyone else in reducing tensions and in beginning our engagement with North Korea. Uh, similarly, for President Trump's part, I believe he saw the opening created by President Moon through his diplomacy, especially during our Winter Olympics, leading up to Winter Olympics and setting up the Inter-Korean Summit thereafter. He saw the opening there. And so he also thought this would be good opportunity to get involved in a very high level diplomacy to see what progress there could be made uh, on denuclearizing North Korea. What do you think is Washington, D.C.'s biggest misperception or blind spot vis-a-vis North Korea? Uh, Let let me try to think on that. What is the North Korean misperception? I'm not sure there is a misperception per se. You know, we've had a very, very tense situation for since the end of Korean War in 53. There is complete mistrust or lack of trust 
on the part of Washington towards North Korea and similarly on the part of North Korea towards Washington. So I'm not sure you can characterize anything as misperception mm. given the lack of trust. What do you think motivates Pyongyang's foreign policy? I believe uh, Pyongyang's foreign policy is motivated by number one, uh, regime survival, regime continuity. And I think that is the key driver of uh, North Korean foreign policy. Now, let's talk about uh, denuclearization, obviously a big topic. In your estimation, uh, do many U.S. officials really believe that CVID, denuclearization of North Korea, can be achieved? I think prevailing view in Washington and United States in generally among experts is that North Korea, having worked on this program for what now well over 50 years, yeah. you know, uh, and spending so much money and and sacrifice to get WMDs, uh, especially nuclear devices and uh, and their delivery system, which is uh, missiles, that they are not going to give up easily or quickly. And I think that is the prevailing view. I'm not sure anyone would say definitely they will give up or definitely they won't give up. But I think they, they are of the view that it's not going to happen quickly. Do you think there's a difference in views um, in America depending on whether the experts belong to the military or the State Department or to intelligence community? I don't think there is a difference in view uh, of that. I think a uh, difference view is probably more rela related, you know, given it is so difficult to get North Korea to abandon their nuclear programs, how do we negotiate with them? How do we deal with them? I think that's the difference, you know, whether you are politically conservative or whether you are more pro-engagement. I think those are the difference rather than, you know, uh, technical issues. Given that, what are the chances that the U.S. will accept a compromise like a reduction of sanctions in exchange for a partial dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear arsenal? I think for vast majority of Americans who who are in this field, you know, whether they're nuclear experts, diplomats, military. I think uh, their view is that very strongly that North Korea should not be acknowledged as a nuclear weapons state. And uh, while they admit it will take a while, while they admit the reality that North Korea has the uh, nuclear devices, it is not a step that the United States should take, that is to acknowledge, formally acknowledge uh, North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. Okay, uh, that formally acknowledging is one thing, but you know, tacitly living with a nuclear-capable North Korea uh, is another thing. Uh, now, Seoul and Tokyo have been living with a nuclear-capable North Korea for years, with, you know, without uh, causing any incident. Does that not mean that extended deterrence still works? Well, you know, of course, ex extended de deterrence works. You know, uh, mutually assured destruction also works. Uh, so all those are in possible paths, whether you're for containment or whether you're for engagement. I think, uh, Jacko, key thing to realize is that you know, throughout, you know, what, a couple of decades or so, American uh, policy establishment in general 
have accepted that going to a war or provoking a war with North Korea to get rid of their nuclear program was something that was not cost effective. The the fallout Mm. from such a war would be too costly to endure and that resulting strategic position for the United States would also be detrimental. So that's something we have not accepted. And uh, I, I, I believe that remains the case. Now, Ambassador Yoon, I'm going to read you a clause from uh, United Nations sanctions uh, resolution. Quote, affirms that it shall keep the DPRK's actions under continuous review and is, rep- is prepared to strengthen, modify, suspend or lift the measures as may be needed in light of the DPRK's compliance and, in this regards, expresses its determination to take further significant measures in the event of the further DPRK nuclear test or launch, end quote. Now, given that North Korea doesn't currently test nukes or missiles, is it in, could it be said to be in partial compliance with recent UN resolutions? Well, I think there have been a number of resolutions and their goal always have been for North Korea to abandon uh, its nuclear program. I would dispute that uh, stopping tests, you know, are in fact uh, coming into compliance. Uh, stopping tests is, of course, uh, the first step but it does not mean they're in compliance with the UN Security Council resolutions. But we do have um, a bit of a, a problem here that the US has repeatedly stated that uh, sanctions will remain fully in place until complete denuclearization has been achieved. Uh, here in South Korea, I'm sure you're aware, the situation isn't quite so, uh, so rigid. And there's talk of modifying, suspending, perhaps lifting some sanctions uh, in order to um, engage with North Korea and to assist in its economic development. How do you see that? Well, of course, uh, these are all, you know, what I would call, you know, public opening positions. And uh, as a diplomat, you go in with those positions and you talk to your, you know, counterparts, see how much room they have and how much progress they can be made. It, these these are things that has to be done quietly. Obviously, both sides are under instructions. And so let's see where that ends up. At this time last year, almost exactly a year ago today, um, some U.S. diplomats and former diplomats were privately warning friends to get out of Korea, take a long vacation, or at least send their families out in case of a preemptive U.S. strike against nuclear facilities in North Korea or a bloody nose strike against a strategic target in Pyongyang. Uh, Meanwhile, they were publicly putting out a slightly more measured message, uh, President Trump's tweets notwithstanding, uh, one that left open the question of kinetic action. Now, I don't know if you are one of these people or not who are saying different things in private and public, but how do you account for this conflicting messaging coming out of Washington at the time? What you have to realize is that last year we were faced with number of missile tests. I remember, you know, especially in September last mm. year, there was the sixth nuclear test. Yep. And in November last year, there was uh, ICBM Hwasong 15 tests. And so each side is always worried about is the other side going to take a step too far? You know, for example, say, what happens if some missiles land near Guam or near Hawaii? 
and uh, and and so those things. So you always, you know, make contingency plans. So contingency plan is you know what happens if something happens, as I said, like those scenarios. So they're not what I would call central scenario of expectation, but you know our military plan and everyone plans, and so those conflicting or I would say uh, messaging is, is is based on some of the contingencies people thought up. So was the private messaging of some people to get out of town for a while somewhat contrary to US administration official messaging or was it actually promoting fear and tension as a deliberate part of administration signaling? I, I, I don't think there was ever the case of deliberately messaging that situation was more dire than it was. Well, on October 10th last year, there were reports that the US would try to shoot down a North Korean ICBM launch or some other kinetic response. In the event, this never happened. How close do you think we got to kinetic action? I don't think we got very close. Uh, Could we find ourselves in the same position again in, in a year or two or even five from now if North Korea and US negotiations and relations do not continue to move forward as they have? I think, again, that's a good question, Jacko. I mean, my view is that there has to be results. There has to be step-by-step progress. And in order there to be a step-by-step progress, there has to be a framework in which the US side and North Korean side, as well as other interested parties, such as South Korea and, and China, engage in a dialogue. And so in order for this problem not to persist into future, everyone must get a sense that we're moving towards closer towards our, our reducing tensions as well as eliminating the source of tensions, which are our nuclear weapons. Uh, South Korea and North Korea recently opened a liaison office in Kaesong so that they can have uh, ongoing dialogue. There was allegedly some rumblings in D.C. that this might be actual a breach of sanctions. Do you agree with that? My own view is that liaison offices, you know, whether it's a South Korean liaison office in North Korea or American liaison office in Pyongyang promotes dialogue. And it's so, so I'm very supportive of liaison offices. Initially, when you announced your retirement from the State Department, there was some speculation that it was because you disagreed with President Trump's policies on North Korea. But I believe you stated publicly that it was simply a retirement, not a resignation. Do I have that correct? I left at that time, uh, you know, for, for several reasons. Uh, one was not necessarily disagreement with policy, as in the sense that my own uh, bureaucracy, which is a State Department, mm. were no longer in charge of the issue. I felt that you know by that time, uh, a lot of work was being done through CIA and others, and I felt my usefulness had run out. And by that time, it also became obvious that my boss, Tillerson's relationship with his own boss was kind of bad. Mm. So, so it made us weaker still. So I chose, uh, for, for those reasons, I chose to leave. Do you have any regrets in retiring when you did? Would you like to go back if you could? No, I have no regrets. I've I done my bit 
And now I feel that uh, my involvement in USIP, as well as doing some public commentating, can also move the policy forward towards engagement and diplomacy. Looking back on your career, uh, what was the most difficult thing you worked on? Uh, I mean, I would certainly count the North Korea issue as among the uh, most difficult But I think uh, I also worked on other issues like Myanmar uh, when I was in Washington. That was also quite difficult, especially uh, in, in, in early days of opening, you know, building relationship between uh, United States and Myanmar. And so those were quite difficult. And I would also say, you know, when I was in Malaysia, we had uh, two Malaysian airliners that crashed mm. uh, and and so those were you know of course they they are less of a policy issue and more of management issues dealing with a fallout from big airliners going down so those were uh, quite challenging too what are you most proud of having done in your career on on my part uh, I have always tried to bring diplomacy as a tool to improve relations between countries. And so for me, you know, during my assignments in Korea uh, in, in late 90s, when there was IMF crisis, as well as transition to Kim Dae-jung for uh, administration, uh, to me that was that, you know, that, that United States, Washington and Seoul could work through that transition and through transition during crisis time to me uh, was what was something that I'm you know I feel I was part of that and of course uh, I was also uh, very happy to have contributed in a meaningful way to opening Myanmar uh, as well as what happened there afterwards in terms of elections and normalization of relations with the United States. I'm also happy that when I did the North Korea account, uh, we opened the New York Channel in a, under very difficult circumstances, reaching out, persistently reaching out to North Korea to see whether a path to dialogue was possible. For all those I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel uh, I was part of. Was it difficult to make that initial approach to the North Korean uh, diplomats in New York? I mean, it wasn't so much difficult as uh, North Koreans decided to cut off uh, New York Channel. I believe it was in early in 2016 as a result of uh, uh, Kim Jong-un being put on a sanctions list as an ent- as, as, as a designated individual. So there was completely no communication between North Korea and the United States. Mm. And so when I came in, I made it a priority to reopen that channel, which we did as soon as uh, President Trump was inaugurated on January 20th. How did you initially do that? Did you just make a phone call or drop by the yeah, office I mean, of the UN? I mean, how does one actually, you know, reopen a channel that's been closed off so so forcefully? Channel is nothing but phone calls and email. Yeah. I know that uh, you've probably read uh, Don Oberdorfer's book, The Two Careers. Uh, he talks about this sort of orange juice diplomacy that took place back in the 1990s. Did you invite the uh, the North Korean diplomats out for juice? Well, I mean, I, I did make several trips to New York. Yes, and we, you know, we 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 we, we met. You know, you know, and 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 when you meet, 
you build a connection and so you can go from there. It's such a curious situation having diplomats of one country and another country, but there being no actual dialogue between those two countries. Right. It is very peculiar situation, but this is typically what happens in, in countries that in terrible state of relations, for example, uh, with Iran, obviously, that's what it had to happen. And similarly, somewhat with Cuba and so on. And, and so let's hope that uh, we are beginning of something that will lead to better relations and also lead to the source of tensions, uh, which I say is the uh, nuclear weapons uh, in North Korea, uh, to, you know, getting to a point where we can address them uh, better than we've done in the, in the past. Now that you're working uh, part-time, as you mentioned, with the uh, U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, do you have hope that you will live to see fundamental change in North Korea and maybe some kind of peaceful coexistence on the Korean Peninsula or even a, even a political unification? I hope that's the case. I mean, clearly, that is what everyone hopes, that there will be reconciliation between two Koreas and that two Koreas can exist, coexist. And I'm not sure about reunification, but clearly, this is what the people of uh, both sides of DMZ want. And let's hope that uh, there is movement uh, towards that soon. When you say this is what people on both sides of the DMZ want, do you mean uh, peaceful coexistence or unification? Peaceful coexistence. Is that what you, um, through your current work with USIP, will you be devoting you know, your retirement life to that? Uh, certainly, I would want to continue to work on Korean Peninsula issues, and, uh, and, and, and that is the goal of anyone who works on Korean Peninsula issues, that tensions are reduced, and there is a peaceful co coexistence between two Koreas. Do you think a second summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un will happen before the end of this year? That clearly is the goal. I, I very much expect it will happen uh, if not before the end of the year, but then soon thereafter in the new year. Any idea where it could happen? Oh, I think your idea, your guess, Jacko, is as good as mine. You know, I, I like the idea of a three-way summit here in Seoul. That's possible. Trump, Kim, and Moon you know? sitting in a room and just working it out together. I think that's a good, good one too. Uh, then, of course. Today on the newspaper, uh, the front page, the big story is that the Pope might visit North Korea soon as well. Do you think that would achieve anything? That's a that's a that's a that's a tough call, and uh, and and I think uh, the Pope has to deal with number of issues on whether he visits North Korea or not. I mean, because of course there is no Catholic Church in North Korea. Well, there's that one that one in Pyongyang, isn't there? there? I think there is a church, yeah. but it's not a Catholic church. It's a non-denominational church. I'm sure there are Catholics in North Korea, too. And, you know, you know the Pope is going to have to deal with the whole issue of religious freedom and uh, recognition of uh, churches, human rights issues, and, uh, and so on. So this is a tough call. Your career in the State Department and, and just your personal interest in uh, the Korean Peninsula, has it made you optimistic or cynical? I would like to think that I'm a realist. I'm a realist and that how 
tough these problems are. Uh, the two Korea has been separated uh, since uh, what you know 1945, and and really the geopolitical position, geographic position, strategic position. There's so much at stake here that you know to some extent they the the Korean people have been victims of their geography mm. and so it's a tough issue and but you know we are in 21st century the cold war is over uh but yet there is this division it lingers and it looks like it's gonna last a while so it is a tough situation and uh being realistic i don't see a easy solution out there but that does not mean we should not be working towards those solutions. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it today. Thank you once again for joining us today, Ambassador Joseph Yun. Don't forget, listeners, check out our shop at nkshop.com for all your Christmas gifts. Use the product code NKPODCAST10 for a 10% discount. Share the podcast with friends and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs> <laughs>